Hello, and welcome to Chapel Bell Curve, a stats-focused podcast about UGA football. I'm Nathan, and Justin's not here to add his part of this because Justin's not here today, so it's just Nathan. And today we're going to be going over newest news and notes from UGA, uh, including transfers, salaries, and the like, as well as taking some listener questions. So let's get started. Today we are going to talk about a bunch of just kind of collected uh, stories that have been happening around uh, UGA Nation lately. UGA Nation, what does that even mean? What am I saying? And this is going to be a shorter episode because we don't have our dearly esteemed comrade Justin here. He may or may not add a note or a uh, a little bit of editorial commentary somewhere in this episode, but uh, he is not with us in person today because he is very busy um, going on and doing amazing things in his career, and also planning his wedding, which is, if you've ever planned a wedding in the past, you know, is just a really horrible time. Planning a wedding is really like a test to see whether or not you really want to get married. I don't remember a lot from planning my wedding. Most of it is just sort of like a red haze. But anyway, um, so uh, since we last talked to you, we've had several things happen. Uh, UGA scored at the end of April a pretty big transfer from Notre Dame defensive tackle Jay Hayes. About halfway or quarter of the way through May, uh, UGA re-signed Coach Kirby Smart to a record-breaking contract in the history of UGA. And then even more recently, we've had some sort of scuttlebutt about players uh, who are and are not participating with the team. We've had some transfers. We've had some people leave the team, et cetera, et cetera. So let's get started. Uh, let's start with Jay Hayes. Jay Hayes was a starter on Notre Dame's team last year who decided to transfer for whatever reason. I'm not sure. I'm not a Notre Dame insider or honestly even a Georgia insider, but I'm really not sure why he is deciding to transfer, but we are definitely happy to have him. He had previously soft committed to Oklahoma, but not signed anything. And then he came to G-Day and on April 25th, I believe he committed to UGA. Um, I think this is a pretty big deal for several reasons. One, uh, while he's definitely was not a flashing play, flashy player at his time during his time at uh, Notre Dame, he did have seven tackles against UGA, which is you know against obviously a pretty good offensive line last year. And uh, a lot of the advanced stats people who do play-by-play grade outs of uh, players have him rated at about the same level as Trenton Thompson in terms of run-stopping efficiency, even a little bit higher, if I'm not mistaken. And so while Trenton Thompson did not light the world on fire at UGA, he was a very good steady player who um, was especially effective stopping the run. So, you know, Jay Hayes kind of fits that mold. He's about 290. He'll play the five technique, which the way Georgia plays in the three, four, even though he'll be outside of the tackle, he's not going to be rushing the passer a lot on first, you know, on first downs, he'll probably play five. On second and third, he'll probably play third uh, three. But he definitely adds much-needed depth with the departure of um, several very good players from the front seven from last year. And so I think, you know, from that standpoint, even if he didn't grade out uh, from an advanced perspective as, you know, an above-replacement-level player, which he does seem to be, you'd still be happy to have him just for, you know, just for depth's sake. Now, when Hayes committed, there was some rumblings about Tramiel Wathauer, who was a... Uh, three-star recruit out of Liberty County, actually the same, if I'm not mistaken, the same uh, high school that Richard LeCount went to, there was some sort of scuttlebutt that maybe Tramiel Walthour would take a gray shirt, which would mean that he would not enroll at UGA and would actually delay his enrollment till next January. Um, his coach said that there had been, as of right now, no plans for that, but 
of course, we don't know what the final decision on that is as of, as of right now. Now, that original scuttlebutt, and this kind of transition us neatly into another topic, but that original scuttlebutt was brought on by the fact that there was some concern, especially with the addition of Jay Hayes, um, that we would be over the 85 scholarship limit. That does not seem to be a concern anymore. Several players have transferred out of UGA in the past two or three weeks, which, you know, is always a sad thing to see. But, you know, I think several of them were, should have been expected. Um, the first person to declare a transfer was Pat Allen, who was a offensive guard, apparently a pretty talented one, a three, a high 304 star player, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, who I, you know, he actually started some games two years ago for UGA. And I think he might have started one game last year. Um, all in all, a pretty talented player, but just the way UGA has been, the way we've been recruiting um, on the offensive line has been at such a high rate that even a very good player could get kind of rubbed out. He ended up transferring to Southeast Louisiana State, you know, an FCS school. So I'm not sure if that's, you know, he intends to transfer back up from there or if that's just where he got interest from. Uh, Jalil LeGuins, who was a linebacker, also transferred out of UGA. That was sort of surprising when we got LeGuins. He was a four-star press deck out of Oconee County. He was sort of the hometown kid done right. But I also just think that um, he has quite a few people in front of him right now. Uh, Monty Rice, Nate McBride, to name a few. Then, of course, you've got like Natres Patrick. He sort of has gotten lost in the shuffle. They're, they're, it would be interesting to look back. It seems like there have definitely been a few players on that 2015 Jacob Eason class, other than Eason, who have sort of got lost in the transition from uh, Rick to Smart. But long story short, it does seem now that UGA is very firmly under the 85 scholarship limit, as we also had another transfer into UGA announced in the last few weeks. Yeah, so for the second year in a row, uh, UGA has taken a transfer kicker from a, another random school. Landon Stratton was the punter at Murray State last year and actually was a pretty good punter. He averaged 40.4 yards per punt, which is better than Marshall Long, average, than anybody averaged in the GD game. Of course, you know, small sample size fallacy. But, uh, you know, Marshall Long, it has since been announced, has had yet another knee injury. So we're kind of looking at Jake Camarda or nobody as of right now. So, you know, bringing in Stratton, it's not clear whether or not he will be on scholarship as of right now. But I do think that, you know, that gives us more depth that we definitely need. And uh, that also kind of clears us on, you know, get, getting those two players in, plus also signing Tramel Wildhauer, I think, and getting us under the 85 cap. Uh, it looks like all of that is good. And, and you know, I think this is all, if you want to look at this from a more holistic standpoint, because this is definitely not a news podcast because all of this happened three weeks ago. But the thing that you can take away from this is that Kirby Smart has been pretty relentless in pursuing what he seems to see as the weaknesses of his team. From the very beginning of his time at UGA, Kirby has been incredibly willing to take transfer from anywhere he can get him. He took Maurice Smith with him from Alabama, arguably. Um, Tyler, Tyler Canalina played on this team. I mean, there have been several, several players. No, he didn't. Tyler Canalina actually played for Mark Rick. What am I saying? But anyway, there have been several players that have come in um, since uh, Kirby Smart has come, and it's been pretty clear that he is willing to address sort of like the waiver wire ad from the beginning to help improve things. Cameron Nislet comes to mind, a transfer from an Ivy League school who ended up being one of the better punters in the SEC last year and certainly, you know, fixed if he was not, you know, the best punter in the SEC, he was at very least he kept the punting game from being a worry from for UJ and in fact like or from an advanced stats um context, Nislet helped lead UGA special teams unit to be at times the best in the nation throughout the year. I think we finished like third according to many advanced statistics um sites, so that's obviously uh, had worked out for smart but i think you know just in general i think it's a sign of his commitment to playing the margins and sort of commitment to this alabama style 
uh, win at all costs mentality. And, you know, when we use the term win at all costs, we usually mean it in the sense that, you know, you win even at the sacrifice of your morality. But also, I think win at all costs can mean you win by doing every little thing correctly. Um, you know, even the small things that don't seem like they are going to matter much add up to on the margins to be very important. And I think you've seen UGA's uh, player acquisition and development uh, respect reflect that philosophy over the past two years, which is, I think, very good going forward. Because, you know, I think, and this, I'm, I keep saying I'm trying not to tip my hand, but I don't really have a fully fledged thought about next year yet. But one of the things I do think is that this is not a team with a roster that is quite at the Alabama level where we can just assume that it is going to reload immediately. But I think it is a team that is very close to that. So I think it is right for Smart to look for transfers and try to sort of shore up some of the weaknesses. I think Hayes definitely looks like a very big get. And even if next year he has sort of a pedestrian stat line or is just basically a good run-stopping D-tackle, question to me was was never whether or not UGA would have a good front seven. The question to me was, would UGA have a good second team front seven? And certainly... Uh, adding a player who is experienced and who has played at the highest level of the game uh, never hurts with that. Um, and, you know, sort of the win on win at all cost thing transitions us neatly into our next topic that I want to talk about, sort of the last news topic we'll hit on, which is Kirby Smart's extension. So Kirby Smart got a five-year extension, which basically I know that it's come out since then that the mat since this story originally broke the it turns out that the math is a little bit more wonky than was initially reported but basically it runs out it ends up being um seven million dollars a year initially the number reported was that we would be at about seven million dollars a year for smart's new contract since then the ajc recent yesterday reported that he'll only make 6.6 in the first year and then he has the potential to make more than 7.5 million as things escalate originally we were paying him just under four the seven million dollar figure or 6.6 million dollar figure or whatever brings him up to the highest echelons of the sport in terms of payment um i think you know he's right up there with Dabo Sweeney and um, Nick Saban, obviously, and Jimbo Fisher as sort of these coaches that are paid these ludicrously large salaries. I don't really know what, if any, effect this is going to have on the field. I think you can make an argument, and some people will, that you know when you have a long-term contract that at least lets a coach uh, recruit at his highest level. But I don't think that any recruit could plausibly um, claim that they thought that Kirby Smart was going to be leaving anytime soon. Um, especially not a recruit that he was recruiting for the 2018 class. Uh, but I do think, you know, it is worth reflecting on and thinking about what does this kind of mean about where we are as a program? It, this is difficult. I, I'm sort of of two minds about this. I think the football side of me sort of thinks that if you are going to play this game and if you want to win, this is sort of just the cost of doing business. And the model that the heuristic model that programs follow in order to win right now is to just sort of throw brain power and money at the problem of winning football and just make sure that that is applied efficiently and what will come out are good results and basically not getting results oriented and just give, doing the right inputs and assuming the output will be uh, will be there. And if it works, which it has been proven to work over and over again, at least with Nick Saban, then that is worth whatever the market will bear, I guess, from a sort of like pure capitalist um, standpoint. I think also there's a totally separate conversation to be had about, you know, should we be paying college football coaches $7 million a year? I mean, obviously this is a college football podcast, but um, I always think it's important to think about, you know, 
you know, what, what is the value add of that? And I, and I'm certain that there could be an economics argument to be made that UJ football adds so much money to the Athens community every year. So I, I'm not, you know, dismissing out of hand him getting our smart being paid this much money and God knows that I love him. And I've sort of been like <laughs> riding the coattails of his success for the past 16 months as we all have. But I do think it's just worth every time we see one of these big contracts coming through, it's worth it to really think about like, you know, what does that number mean? Uh, and is it something that we're comfortable with? And if you are, like, that's fine. I think it's just important to be reflective. Um, I also think, you know, just from a sort of more cynical sort of sports perspective, I think it's really interesting to think about what this means in terms of the future of the leadership of UJ Athletics, because Kirby Smart just sort of basically ended up negotiating whatever price he wanted. And I don't want to get up on my Greg McGarity soapbox, but I do think that it's interesting to see that there have been rumors that Greg McGarity was going to retire in the next year or two, and so McGarity, who sort of has this reputation of being as being a spendthrift, is suddenly willing to pay out seven million dollars a year going forward. You know, I mean, this might be too much reading the tea leaves, but whether or not this means that McGarity's power is waning in the um, athletic department, or it just means that Smart knows that he could just basically name his number, I think it will be interesting to see. You know, in the next twenty-four to thirty-six months, when we make the next athletic director hire, who is that person? What does their background look like? And do they have sort of the um, rainy day fund attitude that McGarity held over from when Michael Adams was president to now? You know, but I don't really think there's any, there's too much else to say about the contract extension other than it's like, if you're in your second year as a head coach and you go to the national championship, you're probably going to get paid and good for you. I'm about at the 16 minute mark on recording. I'm sure once Justin cuts out all my foibles, we'll only be about 10 minutes in, but we're going to have a shortened episode today. But what I want to do is spend the rest of the day just answering some questions that I got from people on Twitter. Uh, I put out a call for questions a couple of days ago, and we had several people uh, ask some really, really good ones. So I'm going to go through them and just sort of um, answer them one at a time here. We've got several actual hard football questions. I want to I want to answer a non-football question first, which is James Barefield, friend of the pod and former UGA Sousa, who won't leave me alone if I don't do this, asked, how many times a day does Nathan cry remembering he's not in Redcoats anymore? And my argument would be that I'm doing all the best parts of Redcoats without any, you know, hardly any of the actual physical labor, so none. But I guess if pressed, I would say, you know, once or twice, I have shed a tear. I think it would have been very special to uh, play in the band last year. Anyway, but hey, I still got to go to everything. We've got several other more pertinent ones to our podcast, though. Uh, Harrison Lanier had a bunch of really good ones, and I'm going to try to answer all of his First, he says, if you had to pick two players each from the offense and defense, a present surprise and a, and a disappointment, who would they be? Let's go offense first. I think that a present surprise is going to be Elijah Holyfield. Now, you can make an argument as to whether or not he'd be a real surprise because I think that you know a lot of people have been expecting a lot from him uh, because of his name for a long time. But I think that you know if you look at it, if you take the name off the jersey, I think that he sets up really well to be a nice complement to what DeAndre Swift can do. Swift is sort of a, a he's a big dude, but you know he's not his style of back is his style of running is definitely not bruising or anything, and he's more of a like just super fast, super shifty guy who is just you know a little bit taller than that normal guy would look. You know Holyfield on the other hand, especially seeing him at the uh, at the his performance at the G Day game, he just he's the, he's a guy who breaks tackles. He is sort of like he has a little bit of that vintage Nick Chubb looking for contact in him. I don't think he's quite like uh, as fleet of foot as Nick Chubb is, and he probably doesn't have that top end speed, but he definitely is a dude who is bruising. And I think that UGA has shown a propensity to rotate through backs. And obviously they're willing to do it with two backs that have an even higher profile than these two do. And so I would think that Holyfield will probably get way more touches than anyone 
right now would credit him for. Now, you know, the the role of Zamir White, whenever Zamir White gets healthy, that'll be an interesting thing to see because White sort of fits that same mold. But I think that Holyfield looks like a guy who, you know, if you're at third and two and everybody knows and you line him up in an eye set and everybody knows that he's getting the ball, can he get those two yards? He looks like a dude who, yes, can get those two yards. Um, as for disappointment, that's tough to say. I mean, because really the answer to all of these have to do with expectations. I'm going to say for disappointment... I, I Okay, here's what I would say. I actually think that one of either McCole Hardman or Terry Godwin will be a disappointment. And the reason I think that is not because they aren't good, but because of two things. One, it seems like they kind of fit a similar role in this offense. And two, uh, you know, Terry Godwin is kind of, I think it would be more likely that Hardman would uh, disappoint. And two, I, I think that we will throw the ball more this year, but I think that we'll probably get some younger people involved. I think... Now that I've talked my way through this, I think it'll definitely be McCole Hardman. He's a disappointment. And so there's several reasons for this. One, Terry Godwin's kind of blocking his spot. Two, I think that we have some very talented people pushing him for playing time. And three, a lot of his value add from the beginning has been on returning punts and um, kicks. But if the new rules go into effect and suddenly anything within the 25 is a touchback, if you didn't know, they have changed the rules for next year, where if you feel the ball within the 25 and call a fair catch, you get it at the 25. So that sort of takes away from some of his marginal value. Um, I'm not saying that he's going to have a bad season by any means. I just think that, you know, maybe this might not be the season that where he's product as productive as we think he will be. Okay. So as for defense, um, I think the pleasant surprise, I'm going to go ahead and say, I think the pleasant surprise is Monty Rice. Now, again, this is another guy where you can make an argument as to whether or not he would be a surprise, but I think that he, you know, I mean, he did, he did play very, very well at the GDA game and he has had some buzz around his name for a while, but um, to me, you know, he is not Raquan Smith. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to be quite that fast, quite that sort of instinctive across the field, but he definitely is a big, strong, fast guy with a nose for the ball. He's tough. He hits hard. He looks like sort of more your quintessential old school uh, middle linebacker. He's not quite, you know, Brian Urlacher size or anything, but he is, you know, He's a bigger dude, um, but I do think he'll fit in really nicely either, you know, behind Natrice Patrick on the depth chart or beside him. I think that he might still have some a ways to go in in pass defense, but, you know, in against the run, he looks very, very good. And actually, I think my disappointment would be Nate McBride. Um, Nate McBride is a guy who has just like incredible track speed. He's like a, you know, 100 meter track runner, but simultaneously he i mean everything i've heard about him is that he runs really fast he hits really hard but he just doesn't he has not advanced as far as a football player as monty rice is or monty rice has so whether that means you know he doesn't always know where to go or he doesn't make the right reads or he's not quite as instinctive i think that that is holding him back and the problem is that he plays a position where decision making and instinctiveness are very very important and you know when he came in he was sort of a fan favorite for like okay this is the next guy who's going to be sort of the middle linebacker at uga because he's big and he's super fast but he doesn't seem to have developed very far to this point in his career as sort of an every down player. Now, having said that, I do think that, you know, disappointment is relative in the sense that, oh no, if it takes him three years to develop instead of two and he turns out to be really good his junior year, oh, you know, that's not the worst thing in the world for a player to do. Not every player can play their freshman year. Um, So I guess that disappointment is just sort of on the scale of our ridiculous expectations. So Harrison uh, actually had a couple of questions. So he said, can you give a stats-based insight on Cortez Hankton and Dan Lanning considering the performance of their players at previous jobs? Thoughts on the importance of pulling Scott Fountain back in? Stats breakdown of our new grad transfers. Okay, so let's take those one at a time. 
Uh, can I give a stats based insight on Cortanz, Hegden, and Dan Lanning, considering the performance of their players in the previous jobs? Uh, short, in short, no. Dan Lanning was at Memphis before that, so it's sort of an apples to oranges thing. Cortez Hankton was at Vanderbilt, also sort of an apples to oranges thing. And I would actually say that if we if we went just pure non advanced stats, we would actually th- those comparisons would actually look bad. But you know, every football coach coaches in their um, sort of only in their context. So you know, I when both of these guys got hired, I looked up videos of them that had been made you know promotionally at their previous jobs or interviews they had given or just like you know any small clips of them teaching and they both seem to be pretty good teachers and who you know are just young energetic guys who really care about craft i know that cortez hankton in particular was a former nfl wide receiver and everything that i've heard about him is that he is definitely a guy who um he really cares about the details and that's not to say that james coley wasn't a good wide receivers coach but you know james coley also wasn't previously an nfl wide receiver um so i think my sort of subjective read of that is that he will be very good. Dan Lanning has been a guy, and I actually know a little bit more about him because he did several interviews for a project that uh, some sports site did about TAs a few years ago when he was in um, uh, Arizona State. And he just seems like a very high energy, like sort of young Glenn Schumann style coach. I think he's going to be a star in terms of recruiting. And I think if you look at the profile of the coaching tree that he derives from, in the sense that he sort of bounced around and played for some very, very good coaches, that his future is also good. I would hesitate to give stat breakdowns on any of those because, you know, coaches good coaches generally speaking move up from teams that are worse to teams that are better and especially at the assistant coaching level it's difficult to like i'll give a good example of this would be like uh last year cortez hankton with vanderbilt certainly vanderbilt didn't have a an, a wide receiver powerhouse a group a powerhouse group of wide receivers and their passing game wasn't that great but it's hard to say you know if if you look at just their raw passing game rank what is what part of that is cortez hankton what part of that is They didn't have a very good offensive line. They played Alabama and Georgia. They didn't have uh, all world quarterbacks. So it's hard for me to say. And also I'm not like an expert at either one of those positions or any positions on football. So I can't just look at the tape. I would say thoughts on the importance of pulling Scott Fountain back in. Um, I think that that was a very important move. I think, you know, Scott Fountain definitely seemed like that Shane Beamer was helping us, but you know, when Scott Fountain came in as an outfield analyst last year, we went from like middle of the pack to top 10 in most efficiency special team spats. Um, and I certainly think the fact that someone tried to hire Scott Fountain away indicates that he was doing a pretty good job. So I think it's it was a very big get for us. And, you know, special teams won us some games last year. I mean, uh, you can argue that us fielding, correctly fielding that pooch kick on uh, at the end of the first half of the Rose Bowl was sort of the turning point of that game. And certainly that was just a really good athletic play from someone who I think is going to be of a star at inside linebacker next year. Um, but on the other hand, I think that's also just good coaching. You have the guy, you know, I think a lot of special teams is about just having guys in the right place and doing sort of things by the book, uh, especially on the blocking and tackling side of it. It seems like that's definitely been taken care of. And so I can't complain. Uh, it will be interesting to see what happens to Kevin Butler next year. I know he was a grad assistant these past two years, but he just graduated. So it'll be interesting to see if they keep him around and if so, in what capacity finally, well, no, not even finally. Wow, we're not even halfway through. Wow, Harrison Lanier, just killing it with the uh, questions. Uh, stacks breakdown of our new grad transfers. Yeah, so I already kind of went over this a couple of times. Jay Hayes definitely seems to be um, a very good run-defending defensive tackle who plays at or above the level of um, Trenton Thompson. I, I would say that they're they're sort of good comparison in terms of their performance from last year. Now, Jay Hayes certainly didn't have the sort of all-world... All 
uh, number one overall recruit reputation that Trenton Thompson did, but their results on the field speak differently. Uh, the transfer from Murray State, the punter, uh, 40.1 av- yard average on the year next year, last year. I mean, that's nothing to sneeze about. And uh, punting is certainly something that seems to be, at least if uh, recent history shows us anything, seems to be a little bit modular in the sense that we had Cameron Nizalek come in from the Ivy League and do very well last year. I would think that Jay Hayes definitely will play, if not start. And we'll see. I think that the punting situation is a lot more fluid because you have Jake Kamarda coming in, who is rated as the number one overall punter in this class for next year. And then he says, consequently, can, for what positions can advanced stats tell us the most about? Okay, that's sort of a big question. But, uh, you know, if, in terms of returning production, uh, we do know that there's a slight favor towards, uh, like, defensive returning tr- production is way more important, or not way, but is slightly more important than offensive returning production, and in particular the, in the defensive backfield, which is what I say, which is why I think that DeAndre Baker deciding to come back for his senior year is one of the most important just, um, things that flew under the radar this in this offseason. Um, you know, I mean, I think the obvious answer to this question, if you're just not talking, if you're just talking about, you know, sort of the every down stat kind of thing is... Uh, those skill positions and in particular quarterback that is sort of I think uh, I think quarterback since it is the you know considered by most to be the most important position on the field and it's definitely the position that gets the most attention it also has the most fully fleshed out um, set of numbers for it you know uh, even though S&P plus does do everything sort of by position group and by well not position group but by side of the ball you know passing efficiency I mean, even in something as dialed down as passing efficiency, they're still both the wide receiver and the quarterback. So, but I still think that just with all the measures there are for quarterback play from QB rating to QBR to sort of like more advanced statistics from other like various and sundry sites, I think that that's one's the probably that what we can get the most out of. I think the least is probably the lines. A lot of the grades that you, a lot of the stats that you see for the lines are sort of aggregate grades where you know someone has gone in and watched every snap by each player and rated them one by one and while certainly those are like incredibly helpful and god bless whoever does them you know it's it's difficult to say what their statistical validity is because they're sort of like a subjective rating um even though i think they're super useful they're not really an advanced stat in the sense that we can like plug them in and crunch the numbers all right so one more question and then i think we'll probably get out of here today john motes who is uh, one of the very able percussion instructors for the Redcoats actually asks, uh, based on defensive production we've lost and what we have returning, what do you project will be the scoring defensive stat at the end of the year? Same with offense or uh, defensive scoring rank. I, I think that on defense, we will be fine. I do not think that we are going to be sort of a top 10 tier defense um, this year. I think we might be sort of in the overall and mostly overall production ranks. I think we'll probably be in like the, the teens as opposed to the tens. And I think what's going to happen, the reason for that will be that we are going to give up yards that we shouldn't in the first few games as the young players in the defense start to adjust. I think that, you know, certainly the South Carolina game is a game of much concern to me, but even more so, more than that, the Missouri game. I think it's very possible in the Missouri game that UJ wins, but we win like 40 to 35, and the defense just does not look very good. I think, you know, once some of these young players start to gel together and play with a little bit more experience under their belts, that what will end up happening is that, you know, over the last six games of the season that the defense just has so much talent that it'll be, you know, playing at the quality of a top team defense, even if it didn't do that consistently throughout the full, full year. 
to quantify that a little on defense to quantify that a little bit more specifically uh last year uga ended up 11th overall per defensive smp plus i would say that ov- that will probably slip down to somewhere between 25 and 15 on the year and i think that that will almost fully be powered by a slow defensive start in the first couple of sec games which i think we still have a very good chance to win but which i think will sort of hurt, hurt the off uh hurt the defenses overall ranking just in the sense that they're going to have some bad games. Now, as for the offense, that I think is a much more interesting and I would say rosy. I have a much more rosy prediction for that side. So last year um, on offense, UGA uh, was per SP plus was the 14th best offense. I think this team has the potential to be a top 10 offense. I think that, and you know, that's only four starts, four spots moved, but I think that's, you know, the difference between 14 and top 10, I think for us is going to be a lot of explosiveness. Last year, some of our lowest like overall aggregate statistical rankings in time, inside of S&P Plus were on passing down and on ISOPPP. We were a very explosive team last year. We were fifth overall in explosiveness, but our passing down numbers were a little bit worse. And I think that, you know, the difference between 14 and 10 is not that much. For instance, like UJ's overall S&P plus aggregate score was 36.0 in or 36 flat. And then like 10th was 37.6. But I do think the difference between them on the field and what will fuel the growth of our offense will be a, you have a year older in Jake Fromm. B, I just think you have one of the more talented wide receiver rooms that UGA has had since AJ Green this year. Now we definitely don't have an AJ Green level star. I think those are coming next year, but I think we have just a lot of very solid players who can sort of open the offense up a little bit. I think that you will see an increased role than tight ends. I know this is like every Georgia fans fantasy to some, it's like, oh wow, if we have Isaac Nada, he's a five star tight end. Why aren't we throwing to him? We have Charler Warner. He's a four-star tight end. Why aren't we throwing to him? I think this will be the year that we actually do just because I think Jim Chaney's, you know, is now the tight ends coach. So I think maybe that you might see a little bit more emphasis on that in the game plan. And, you know, I also just think that even though we are losing uh, both Chubb and Michelle, this is, this is sort of a delicate thing to say because we all love Sony and Nick so much, but, you know, UGA has proven that you can get, do you can have a sustained level of success at running back. And I'm not saying that, you know, DeAndre Sift and Samir White and Elijah Holofield are going to be better than Sony than Sony and Nick. And they certainly won't have the leadership qualities that Sony and Nick did. But I do think that we have enough talent that some combination of players can put together uh, at least near the level of what Sony and Nick did last year. And if you have a better version of the passing game, which I think you will, and you have a better offensive line, which I think you will, then I think what you're going to see is an increase in the both efficiency and I think even more so the explosiveness of the offense next year. And, you know, I think too, like it's sort of like uh, in, in pitching or in uh, the MLB, they say that when you take a pitching prospect, like a like a really good like developmental high school arm or you take a really good college senior or whatever as a pitcher you're they say you know you're like buying a lottery ticket and you don't know whether or not it's going to cash because sometimes pitchers just don't pan out and sometimes you know there's injuries or whatever and i think it's it's sort of a similar approach with running back at uga in the sense that i don't know which one of those guys is going to just like run for 1100 yards but I think that there's so much talent in the room, in the running back room, that one of them is. Anyway, so we're sitting here at, what, 30-ish minutes right now. So uh, I think that's going to be about it for me today. So next week we will have, we will be recording another episode with two new special guest hosts. Um, we're going to be sort of rotating through some guest hosts and some um, just sort of more narrative-focused 
uh, podcast in the next few weeks leading up to our true preseason preview podcast. Um, just so, you know, Justin can make, can get married in peace. Other than that, we look forward to sort of slowly increasing our uh, presence here going, you know, in these next few months or the next few weeks coming into June and July that we are truly in the dog days here, but we're going to try to reach out to you with content, you know, the best we can and keep you tied over. Um, But until then, we will talk to you soon. This has been Chapel Bell Curve. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere you can subscribe to a podcast. You can get in touch with us on Facebook by searching Chapel Bell Curve, by email at chapelbellcurve at gmail.com, and on Twitter and Instagram at Chapel Bell Curve. Also, go check out our new website, chapelbellcurve.com. It's not new, but it is our website. It has a lot of cool stuff, um, including a bunch of stats from last season and some writing that I did. And also, it'll just be where you can find all our podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Chapel Bell Curve. If you enjoyed today's episode or you just enjoy our work in general, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes or I think Apple Podcasts now. It really, really helps us. But until then, we'll catch you in the Classic City and go dogs. It's weird. I always sing the wrong parts when I sing that because I played tuba.